Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 231, the scandal of Christendom debate is here at last. So this is where, at last, you the listener gets to vote and give your opinion and all of that and put the world to rights. Redeem or damn Anne Boleyn's reputation forever and indeed for a day. And at the same time, give yourself the chance for riches and glory by entering the prize draw for all those fabulous prizes on offer. This is the bit, I have to say, that I've been really looking forward to. Putting aside the postmodern irony, I'm really looking forward to seeing which way it goes and why it goes that way. Before I go on, though, let me do an advert. An advert for me. If you have enjoyed the debate and our Anne Boleyn month, then why not become a History of England member? In return for your piffling annual or monthly subscription, you receive the satisfaction of knowing you have supported the History of England podcast and you get the equivalent of roughly three extra podcasts a month, plus the extra fun and games we members have, like extra quizzes and competitions. Back to the scandal of Christendom. As I've previously mentioned, I've put a debating question up, a motion on the interweb, website, Facebook, that sort of thing. And now I ask you at the end of this episode to go to the History of England Facebook page, the page mind, the one with the grey heron, not the group, and give your view. You just post your comment and put A, B or C in the comment. Polls will stay open for almost two weeks until the 10th of November and the results and prize winners announced on the 12th of November. There are links and information on the historyofengland.co.uk so just go there if you are in any way confused. The historyofengland.co.uk So the motion is this. The History of England agrees with Eric Ives that Anne Boleyn was a, quote, maker of history, and rejects Catherine of Aragon's insult that she was nothing more than the scandal of Christendom. So do you A, agree, or B, disagree? Or indeed, C, do you neither agree nor disagree, and if you are that cussed, hopefully you'll tell us why, like Mary, you have decided to be so quite contrary. You can vote, by abstaining, which is effectively a C. By submitting any kind of vote, A, B or C, you are entered for the Scandal of Christendom prize draw. And there are four prizes on offer, ladies and gentlemen, which you can see on the History of England website again. Have I mentioned the History of England website before and enough times now? So, the four prizes are a Henry VIII original silver half-groat, courtesy of Simon Hall at Hall's Hammered Coins. A choice from Claire Ridgway of her book, The Fall of Anne Boleyn, or her online course, The Life of Anne Boleyn. Natalie Gruninger's book, In the Footsteps of Anne Boleyn, and Lucy Churchill's fantastic The Most Happy Portrait Medallion, 
described by David Starkey as the best image we are ever likely to have of Anne Boleyn. This episode, then, is just to gather together some of the issues and questions that feed into it, so that you can make a rational and informed decision. Of course, you might not want to make a rational and informed decision. After all, I'm essentially asking you if you're an Anne Boleyn fan or not. But that seemed like such an unprofessional question, so I complicated everything, which, gentle listeners, is one of the stories of my life and a personal character flaw. Enough. Onwards. So, that motion again. The history of England agrees with Eric Ives that Anne Boleyn was a maker of history and rejects Catherine of Aragon's insult that she was nothing more than the scandal of Christendom. So, to agree with the motion, as again I've posted on the website and Facebook, should you forget, I think you would agree with most or all of the following statements. Let us make one thing clear. I don't suggest you have to agree with all of these. They're not mutually exclusive. And we know people are neither all good or all bad. So, statement number one. Anne did not cynically entrap Henry from a lust for power. She and Henry shared a genuinely loving relationship. Number two, you would tend to agree that Anne was an active and effective player in court politics rather than simply being its victim. You might agree that three, you would see Anne as a genuine leader and a principle of change rather than just a catalyst because of the king's hots for her. So she played an active part in leading, influencing and shaping policies such as the strategy to break with Rome. Statement number four, you would take seriously the idea that she promoted evangelical ideas and reform and that she did so from personal conviction and piety, not just because they happened to support a break from Rome and therefore improve her chances of becoming queen. And five, finally, despite reports of her passionate outbursts, you might think that her treatment of Catherine of Aragon and Mary was as much due to the king's views and the necessities of the situation as to any personal vindictiveness on Anne's part. So, let's start with the first of those points. What was Anne and Henry's relationship really like? Did they have genuine feelings for each other? And indeed, why is such a question important? It's important, I think, because it has an impact on the way we view subsequent events and Henry and Anne's motivations. If this is simply lust on Henry's part, I would argue it devalues much of what he later did. For the likes of Reginald Pole, the future Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury under Queen Mary, it's probably a bit irrelevant. Lust, love, who cares? It's the fact that Christendom is split that matters. But I think it does make a difference. If Henry's mind was already on what you might describe as the necessities of state, in his view. The need for an heir, developing thoughts on royal supremacy. If his views were already thinking about that when his eye hit on Anne, then these critical events seem less arbitrary. Essentially, it strongly then suggests that although Anne may have provided a catalyst, Henry did not create such mayhem simply to gratify his feelings for Anne. There were other strong reasons too. And for Anne, it's also very important for understanding her motivation. If she followed a distinct personal strategy to attract Henry, then hold him at arm's length to force him to break his marriage to Catherine, then it's easier to doubt the purity of her motivations for the rest of what she does. If, on the other hand, hers was a genuine love for Henry, and Henry could demonstrate he'd already planned to put Catherine aside anyway, 
then Anne looks far less like an adventurous and cynical homebreaker. So in thinking about this question, let's start with the chronology just to give us all a framework. Anne arrived in court during 1521. We then have a few specific moments when Anne appears in the record. She's paired with James Butler in a possible marriage, which doesn't happen. And then, famously, in a possible marriage with Henry Percy, which is nixed by Wolsey. Dating this event with Henry Percy is important because it gives us hints about when Henry might have been interested in Anne and how long this relationship continued. Earliest interpretations have the marriage mooted in 1524 or even 1523. The latest suggestion of a discussion of her marriage between Henry Percy and Anne are at the end of 1525. It is helpful to decide if you believe Cavendish's suggestion that it was Henry that broke the marriage to Percy so that he could keep Anne all to himself, or if this was just a literary device by Cavendish to present Anne as Wolsey's nemesis because he needed a nemesis. And actually, Wolsey broke the marriage between Henry Percy and Anne for other perfectly good reasons, namely the intervention of Percy's father and Percy's prior betrothal to Mary Talbot. If you believe Cavendish, then Henry could have been actively pursuing Anne as early as 1524. If you don't believe it, then 1526 is much more likely, after he has decided, probably in June 25, that he must divorce Catherine because he must have a male heir and has discarded the idea of legitimising Henry Fitzroy. Henry's love letters probably start in 1526. By May 1527, he was actively pursuing divorce from Catherine. As far as Henry's passion for Anne is concerned, it seems to me there is simply too much evidence to mark his feelings down to simply a passing lust. I would refer you to Henry's love letters, which you can find on the Anne Boleyn Files website. I would you were in my arms or I in yours, for I think it long since I kissed you, he wrote. He draws rubbish little pictures of hearts and things, just like a love-lost teenager. Henry wrote 17 letters and they're a remarkable survival. We also have a book of hours in which Henry wrote, If you remember my love in your prayers as strongly as I adore you, I shall hardly be forgotten, for I am yours. Henry wrecks forever. Whenever you date the start of Henry's interest, their pursuit of marriage takes a long, long time, at least seven years, maybe nine. Is it credible that Henry would pursue Anne for so long without genuine feelings for her? For Anne, of course, we have so little evidence, so much less survives, partly because Henry himself tried to rub her memory out. You can build many stories, but here are two opposing ones. Story number one. Cynical, manipulative, power-hungry Anne. Anne at some point recognises Henry's passion, and she's attracted by the prospect of power and cynically determines to make his passion work for her. If you believe the view that Anne actively destroyed Wolsey, that picture is even more credible. This is the Catholic historian John Lingard's view that she artfully kept her lover in suspense, but tempered her resistance with so many blandishments that his hopes, though repeatedly disappointed, were never totally extinguished. But by 1532, her hopes were in crisis. Henry had tried everything possible, and he still cannot get the Pope to agree. The legatine court and Wolsey had crashed three years ago. Henry's passion is as great as ever, but even in her ennoblement as Marchioness of Pembroke, he contemplates illegitimate offspring for her, which tells Anne he still considers that this relationship may end without a marriage. 
So, in desperation, in autumn 1532, Anne sleeps with Henry in the hope she'll get pregnant and push him over the edge. Alternatively, there is story number two, a much more principled view of Anne. This goes that Anne resisted Henry's advances simply because she would not countenance becoming a mistress, either from her personal sense or moral or religious principle, or indeed all of the above. Anne went all the way through the licentious court of France in her youth without attracting the reputation which sticks to Mary, which, given the state of Francis I's court, is something of an achievement and speaks of her own personal self-control. But in 1527, something changes, because Henry starts proceedings against Catherine, and now Anne is convinced that Henry will anyway divorce her, that she will not be the cause of a split between Henry and Catherine, it's Henry's belief in the invalidity of the marriage and his need for an heir that is driving it. So, she then agrees that yes, she will marry him if and when he can make this happen. And she maintains her position right up to 1532. And then in autumn, Anne visited France and met Francis I. She is part of and recognised the world diplomatic. They've reached the point where they feel it's inevitable that they will be able to get married. And so Anne and Henry decide they're safe to hop into bed together, if indeed that is where they hop, not the kitchen table or something. Anyway, moving on. How on earth do you decide such a thing? In the end, your wider view of Anne has to provide the answer because there is little evidence, and anyway, no evidence of what is written in her heart. I would argue there is plenty of evidence of a vibrant relationship. Think of the summer progress where Anne laughingly rides Pillion on Henry's horse to the horror of all propriety. There's a real feeling of Anne and Henry against the world. The stormy row Chapuis relates, if you believe them, are all accompanied by a weary, depressed comment that it's just a lover's tiff and afterwards their love will be stronger than ever. Henry and Anne have shared interests. They appear to debate theology in particular. They share the love of art and finery as they explore York Palace, for example, stepping delicately over the ghostly spirit of a weeping and despairing Wolsey as they go. In 1528, an illuminated book of hours was made, which became Anne's. It's one of two which have notes written in them. Henry's note we have already quoted. If you remember my love in your prayers as strongly as I adore you, I shall hardly be forgotten, for I am yours, Henry R. Forever. Presenting himself as lovesick, he wrote his note on a page depicting the man of sorrows. Anne replied with a couplet in English. By daily proof you shall me find to be to you both loving and kind. And with deliberate enticement, she chose to write her message below a miniature of the Annunciation, with the angel telling the Virgin Mary she would have a son. So, how do you interpret this? Henry as lovesick as he sounds, or Henry as Castiglione's courtier, lying and cheating his way into his love's bed? Henry the arch-dissembler. Anne, cynically leading him on with the prospect of sex and a son, or to be taken at face value, Anne, the principled lover, reassuring him of her love, but refusing to breach the moral code of her day. I must leave it to you to decide. So, to question two, was Anne an active and effective player in court politics? The reason I think this and the other following questions are important is about impact. Does Anne actually make a difference? Or is she just a bit part player? If you want to argue that Anne is a significant figure, then for good or ill, it helps to believe that she was a player, she was involved, even if in some cases the action she takes doesn't put her in the most positive light. It is popular to present Anne as a leader of a faction that gathers around her interest and that she was an active politician. 
I'll argue that evidence for factional politics at all is a bit debatable, and that the hard evidence for Anne's political involvement is far from being a gimme and needs to be carefully weighed. So, Anne as a player in court politics. This is surely one of the most interesting and exciting things about Anne and her story. Here, suddenly, is a woman who, as Thomas Cromwell said, had the intelligence, spirit and courage to rip up the conventions of what women could and could not get involved in and do. One of the problems in answering the question, though, is precisely that the situation is so unusual, because her activity then leaves little imprint on documentation because the official documentation belongs to the king and the normal official channels. And so historians have to develop the snout of a badger. They are forced to snuffle, to search under stones for the grubs and worms of tittle-tattle and innuendo, to interpret and test writings of often deeply biased observers. Now, you might say that, look, this is a slam dunk. Come on. And okay. I accept that scattered all through the writings of Chapuis and Cavendish, Woolsey's contemporary biographer, is the assumption and often explicit claim that Anne was a player. Both testimonies, however, are deeply suspect. For both of them faced a problem. They were passionate supporters of people who would lose out to the king in a pretty major way, of course. Life-threatening ways. Bad ways. Woolsey, Catherine, Mary... But the problem was, you simply could not criticise the king. Anne was therefore an obvious target for both Chapuis and Cavendish, and an extremely useful substitute. She can be the recipient of the bile meant for the king, as well as the bile genuinely meant for Anne. So, of course, it's Henry in all of these cases that delivers the bad news and makes the decision, whether that's about Catherine or Wolsey's fall or whatever. But Cavendish and Chapuis say, look, ignore the evidence of what you can actually see behind the scenes. It's obviously Anne's fault. Actually, it's quite a leap of faith to believe these two observers. You can choose to do so, but you are making a leap of faith. You might respond by saying, look, it's too easy. It's too easy just to say that Anne is just being blamed for everything unfairly. It's a cop-out. If blaming the Queen is something that people did back then to excuse the King's actions, surely we would see this happening with other kings and queens. And we really don't. Well, not necessarily so, I might shoot back. Anne's position is utterly exceptional and uniquely difficult. For six years, she is a usurping mistress. From a pretty ordinary family, she's not a foreign queen. For foreign ambassadors, she's actually a pretty easy, cheap target. So, if you take the view that Cavendish and Chapuis are too biased to accept at face value, and you don't have to accept that, but if you do, there are other observers, of course. One such is the French ambassador Dubelay. You might remember that incident when Wiltshire let Dubelay negotiate away with Suffolk and Norfolk until he thinks he's squared things up and then wallop. Wiltshire stops Dubelay dead with a lot of stonewalling until Dubelay recognises that the Berlins have the authority. At the time, Dubelay says that Wiltshire did this, quote, to make me accept that all the rest have no influence except what it pleases the lady to allow them. Ha, you say. So, here's evidence that Anne is definitively a player. And yet, later, with more experience and knowledge of the Tudor court, Dubelay actually changes his opinion and he says... All that the lady does is by the king's order. So here's the problem. 
We can't see the strings. We can't see who's pulling the strings. A critical situation in this debate is probably the fall of Wolsey. It's critical because here is the clearest story of Anne using her influence to change the political landscape, to be involved, to be a player. And Cavendish's story is that it is Anne that brings him down. It's Anne that pursues him after his initial disgrace in 1529 and pursues him again to prevent his return in 1530. And that she does this because she harbours a deep resentment that Wolsey blocked her marriage to Henry Percy all those years ago. This is the vindictive Anne story, harbouring a grudge over the years, bringing down a servant of the state purely because she doesn't like the cut of his jib and he's caused her personal grief. So, not just vindictive then, shallow as well. This story is largely accepted. So Eric Ives wrote, The fall of Wolsey was first and foremost Anne's success. David Starkey even gets a bit snippy about it, with an offhand comment about modern historians who think they know better than the people who were there, which is a genuinely funny comment, since it would put a lot of historians, including him, probably out of a job if such an approach were adopted. But actually, the evidence that Wolsey's fall was indeed due to Anne is wafer thin. It comes down partly to Du Bellay again, and his comment after Wolsey's fall... The Duke of Norfolk is made chief of the council, and in his absence, the Duke of Suffolk, and above everyone, Mademoiselle Anne. Which is a comment, as we have seen, that is later withdrawn or at least modified. There's also Cavendish's really interesting anecdote at Grafton, the one where Wolsey finds there's no place for him when he arrives at court, and where Anne organises a hunting trip for Henry to keep him away from Wolsey's charms. Well, everyone seems to have a problem with the veracity of this story. Unfortunately, it does not square with other evidence about the meeting, wrote Eric Ives, for example. It's got to be clear. The story at Grafton is not evidence of Anne bringing down Wolsey. If it was not Anne who brings down Wolsey, there needs to be an alternative story. And in Wolsey's case, for sure, there's an absolutely cast-iron, honest-to-goodness, no-poo alternative story. Really, there is no need to invent anything from Anne to explain Wolsey's fall. Henry was humiliated in 1529 in front of the world. Catherine was at her brilliant and imperious best at the legatine trial. She absolutely wiped the floor with a lad. I imagine Henry heard the whooping of her ladies in waiting as she swept out of the room in his ears for the rest of his life. We know that Henry was pathologically incapable of accepting blame for anything. And then the trial was sent to Rome. Not only was Catherine defying him, not only was Rome not doing his bidding, now Catherine had caused him to be put on trial by Rome. Blimey O'Reilly. Wolsey, chief minister, fell because he could not deliver what his boss demanded and had made Henry feel small. Simple. And in fact, the interchanges between Anne and Wolsey can at very least be read both ways. The reported conversations show Anne in a very subordinate light, actually. Here we go. I do know the great pains and troubles that you have taken for me both day and night is never likely to be recompensed on my part, but only in loving you next unto the king's grace above all creatures living. And I do not doubt that the daily proofs of my deeds shall manifestly declare and affirm my writings to be true. Now, these letters are described by some modern commentators as manifestly insincere. Well, they might be... They might also not be. Who can tell on the basis of that language? 
it might be in fact that Anne is the king's mistress at the time the letter was written, with no authority or power outside the king's possibly transitory here-today-gone-tomorrow attraction for her, and she's dead keen to make friends with the second most powerful man in England who appears to have the keys to make her queen. When Wolsey has fallen, in 1530, he's trying to do a Lazarus, and it's Anne he writes to, and he gets a pleasant, sympathetic reply, apparently. OK, Anne doesn't actually speak to the king on his behalf. But even Thomas Cromwell, who is remarkable in his efforts to rehabilitate Wolsey, even Cromwell gets to the point where he tells Wolsey, not doing this anymore, cannot fight your battles with the king, you're an ex-chief minister, you have ceased to be a chief minister, and if I help you anymore, I'll torch my career. So it would have been beyond the call of duty for Anne to make a pain of herself for Wolsey's benefit. But that's hardly the same as bringing him down, and Wolsey felt it worth writing to her. In summary, as far as the fall of Wolsey is concerned, it is at very least debatable whether or not it provides evidence of a politically active Anne. Another assumption often made is that Anne is politically involved because she leads a faction at court. The argument for the existence of faction is that it is believed that Henry VIII could be influenced and that groups of people came together to argue for and influence the king in favour of their own viewpoint. It has all the big advantage of seeming thoroughly credible that in a hothouse atmosphere like court, there would be a lot of gossip and intrigue. After all, you have a bunch of rich, often young, bored, entitled folks who've been told they mustn't have sex all the time. Every so often, they need a break from drinking and gambling, so they gossip and plan. But what's really hard to prove is that they act coherently as a group. G.W. Bernard has a go at the factions idea in particular in his Fatal Attractions book on Anne, which we've mentioned last week in connection with the trial of Anne Boleyn. He takes the example of Nicholas Carew. He is supposedly, and often assumedly in history books, leader of the Aragonese faction that works with Cromwell to take down Anne. There, the hard evidence is difficult again. All that we really know for sure is that Carew serves the king well throughout the pilgrimage of grace, the traditional religion rebellion, and then falls from power in 1538 for betraying the confidences of the privy chamber. The best evidence that Carew is indeed involved in a conspiracy with others to influence the king is a note from Chapuis, which goes like this. It will not be the fault of Carew if the said concubine is not undermined. He is constantly advising Mistress Seymour and other conspirators on how to run against her. So this does sound like evidence of faction and conspiracy. But it's not necessarily evidence of long-term faction. It's really only evidence of conspiracy. This was a note after Anne had just been arrested and Chapuis then wrote home officially the very same day and he mentioned nothing about Carew's actions. So it's possible. He was building up a bit of political gossip from Carew into something grander. The point I'm making is that while the idea of factional politics is very popular, you could take the view that its very existence may be exaggerated, let alone Anne actively heading a faction. So, if you do, however, believe that the factional idea is a runner, does Anne actually lead an organised, coherent faction? And again, it's really hard to point to anything concrete. For sure, we know that her father and brother profited hugely from her rise. And it's beyond doubt that people would identify as her client and seek out her patronage. There's plenty of evidence of Anne behaving as you would expect a great and influential lady and then queen to behave, distributing patronage, interceding with the king on people's behalves. 
but there's no evidence that she organised her people and family around her to take specific actions or run campaigns. It's not even clear who's driving the bus. Is it Wiltshire and Rochford or is it Anne? After all, it's Wiltshire and Rochford who are actually on the King's Council and formally exercise power, not Anne. As a woman, Anne had to rely on her influence behind the scenes and her influence with the King. Once again, all I'm saying is that it's not a given that there are organised factions planning and carrying out campaigns. It's at least possible that there are instead individual reactions to threatening situations or promising opportunities. We know little about the relationship between father and daughter. There is, however, one rather interesting report from Du Bellay, the French ambassador, in 1536. At the time of the famous rebellion in 1536, the Pilgrimage of Grace. The first queen referred to in the following quote is Jane Seymour. The person referred to as the late queen is Anne the Headless Queen, as Anne once declared she'd be called. At the beginning of the insurrection, the queen threw herself on her knees before the king and begged him to restore the abbeys, but he told her prudently enough to get up, and he had often told her not to meddle with his affairs, referring to the late queen, which was enough to frighten a woman who's not very secure. Interesting. If you believe Dubelet faithfully recorded the conversation, this is as strong evidence as anything that according to Henry's lights, Anne had political views and voiced them too much by Henry's potentially rather low standards. Still not evidence she was a factional leader, though. So to summarise, the way you view Anne and her political involvement could vary on quite a wide range. From an active political leader who bossed her clients to work on her behalf and in her interests, to an individual who worked her influence with the king and reacted to events, to a much more traditional figure, a strong and capable distributor of patronage at a queen's command, but not able or even interested in imposing her personal views on the king, council or family. It could even build a case of an Anne focused on her personal position, focused on retaining the attraction of the king and to give him heirs, whose outbursts about Catherine and Mary and so on are a response to the pressure of the situation rather than a specific political agenda. Before we go on to the next question, I'm afraid to say we're going to have what in the trade is called a mid-roll advert. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. By and large, I fiercely resist these, but if you can't have a role on your own podcast, it would be a cruel world indeed. And so, once again, let me say that if you have enjoyed the debate and our Anne Boleyn month, then why not become a History of England member? You receive the satisfaction of knowing you've supported the History of England podcast and you get the equivalent of roughly three extra podcasts a month, 90 minutes-ish. Plus, the extra fun and games we members have, like extra quizzes and competitions. Which brings us to Anne and her influence over the big decisions of the day. And again, the scale is wide. At one end of the possible views is of Ives's Anne as a clear thinker and ambitious player who sees in 1529 that Henry has reached the end of the line with gaining papal approval and that there must now be a break with Rome and statement of the royal supremacy if their marriage is going to go ahead. Somewhere in the middle of the scale 
is the Anne that gives Henry moral support and stiffens his backbone to keep him going. And at the other end of the scale is the anxious mistress, desperate for news, at best a passive catalyst for what happens. In looking for evidence, there is the added problem that from the start of his proceedings with the Pope, Henry was very anxious to keep Anne out of the limelight as much as possible, because it wouldn't help his cause if he appeared to be driven by simple lust rather than a principle and genuine concern about the theological validity of his marriage. Timing is again quite important. It seems likely that Henry came to the decision that his solution was the royal supremacy and a break with Rome in fits and starts. He didn't have a solution in his back pocket, which he then just brought out when Route 1 had failed. Those that see Henry as the leader and originator of all of this point to his as a steadily emerging view in which his opinions supporting the royal supremacy appear much earlier than you might think. The argument that Henry genuinely believes that the Pope has usurped royal authority and that he should be master of all he surveyed without let or hindrance is entirely in Henry's character, is it not? Jack Scarisbrook, still Henry's most admired biographer, takes this very view, to quote from him. The royal supremacy, Henrician, Caesaropapism, call it what you will, grew with the divorce campaign, but was distinct from it. The picture he paints is of a king who from the start held exalted views of the role of the king, as the Hun affair, as far back as 1515, demonstrated. We are, by the sufferance of God, King of England, and the kings of England in time past never had any superior but God. To set against that was his super-traditional view of the importance of the Pope, as evidenced in his Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, which of course won him his scout's badge from the Pope. After that, it's doubtful his thinking moved on for a while until the disaster of 1529 focused his mind. Although in 1528, Wolsey was already warning the Pope that papal authority could be destroyed in England. From 1529, we can chart the development of Henry's thinking. So in 1529, Henry had started to talk openly of his dissatisfaction with the Pope and the Church. In August 1530, there seems to have been a significant change. Henry began to advance new claims of royal supremacy over the Church and over the jurisdiction of the Pope. And from there, his thinking began to develop towards the final declaration of independence and royal supremacy until the final act came in 1534. It takes quite a while, is the point. And through the process, right up to the end of 1532, there are numerous hints that Henry has still not dropped the fear that he may not achieve his divorce without the Pope's approval. Who or what was it that made the difference, that took him over the edge? For some, it is simply that this is a radical solution, overturning a thousand years of history, and it just isn't the job of a moment. The seeds were there in 1515, way before Anne came onto the scene, but it takes a bit of time. For others, this is the decisive intervention of Thomas Cromwell at work. They point to the meandering diplomacy and legislation before his arrival, the stalemate of 1529-32, to and then the acceleration in 1533 and 34, when Cromwell has begun to acquire real power. For others, it is Anne who provides the inspiration and the backbone for Henry to carry it through. If you want to take that last view, that Anne is a prime mover, what's the evidence of her involvement in the process of the divorce and the royal supremacy? Once again, 
Solid evidence is almost all one way. The instructions, of course, flow from Henry, not from Anne. His letters back to Anne all passed along news, and that could be argued, actually, suggests that Anne is unaware of the detail of what's going on, is not part of the debate, and needs to be kept informed. Another example in September 1528 occurred when Henry told Anne that Cardinal Campeggio had reached Paris, and where he was expected to be by when, and hoped that he would, within a while after, to enjoy that which I have so longed for, to God's pleasure and our both comfort. This again sounds rather like Henry informing Anne of business that she has not been involved in, and reassuring her that things are indeed moving along. However, it is clear that Anne has some involvement, and it depends how you interpret this, and whether you think that this is actually just the tip of an iceberg of advice and persuasion in the background, which is simply not reported because it takes place behind closed doors. So, for example, in 1528, Stephen Gardiner returned from Rome. Once he's reported into Henry, he was sent by Henry to go and see Anne. Is this evidence that Anne is always involved? Actually, Anne got Gardiner confused with a man called Edward Fox, and it's argued that this betrays her lack of detailed involvement. I am inclined to think this is a lot to pin on a simple mistake, which I make with my children pretty much every day. Another example is in 1529, when Francis Bryan sends his negative report on the king's chances of papal approval back from Rome, and he wrote to Anne at the same time. But he writes to Henry, Sir, I would have written to my mistress that shall be, but I will not write to her till I may write that shall please her most in the world. Again, you can take this both ways. Either Anne is rather supplementary to the discussion, or Brian is simply scared to tell her the bad news. There are other examples of where Embers is sent via Anne's door, so we can be sure that she was involved, but it's hardly evidence that she was driving the agenda. For the most part, if we believe Anne did have a direct hand in turning the king towards a break with Rome, we have to take it on trust that behind closed doors she is advising and guiding the king, a judgment based on what we know of her character. However, there are two other bits of evidence that suggest Anne did indeed heavily influence Henry's thinking. One is Thomas Cranmer, who of course becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. The story goes that Cranmer is a Berlin client and that his plan to consult the universities is what moves Henry towards the assertion of royal supremacy through the Collectinaire. There's no doubt that this is indeed influential on Henry's thinking. Equally, it's also clear that Cranmer was an admirer of Anne. I never had better opinion of woman, he wrote to Henry when Anne was in the tower, greatly daring. And it's very reasonable, isn't it, to think that this must have come from some debates between them, some meeting of minds. But it's also clear that Cranmer had his idea about the royal supremacy before he met Anne. And it was Gardiner that brought Cranmer to the king's attention, not Anne. The most credit Anne can really have is of continuing to advocate Cranmer's work and encouraging him in his views. The other argument for Anne actively turning the king to the royal supremacy is the story that she persuades Henry to read Tyndale's The Obedience of a Christian Man and Simon Fisher's Supplication of the Beggars. These stories derive from Elizabethan days, but it has to be said there are two separate authorities for the story, John Fox and John Louth, which give the stories more credence. Actually, John Fox gives two accounts of how Fisher's book reaches the king, one via Anne and other by two merchants, so it is a little bit questionable that all of it was Anne's work at all. But 
if you give Anne the benefit of the doubt and assume both books came to Henry by her hand, and if this is not a story made up to curry favour with her daughter, Elizabeth I, then the timing is again important. This was late 1528, early 1529, and it's certainly very early in Henry's thinking about the royal supremacy and could therefore have had an influence. Is this evidence, therefore, that Anne was indeed a driving influence? The choice, gentle listeners, is yours. So, on question three, in summary, did Anne really and genuinely influence Henry's strategy and policy? Was she a genuine partner in this? The snippets we have don't appear to me to be conclusive. It seems reasonable that Anne would have influenced Henry behind closed doors, and therefore the absence of definitive evidence is not conclusive. Nonetheless, it's very hard to slam the book on the table and say, yep, there it is, the smoking gun. Or indeed, the smoking book. Anyway, question four then, folks. The evangelical bit. Did Anne Boleyn really lead England into the Protestant world? John Fox it was who started this particular hair-running when he wrote, What a zealous defender she was of Christ's gospels all the world doth know, and her acts do and will declare to the world's end. Fox is supported by another Elizabethan writer, William Latimer. Both have to be a little suspect. They were writing, after all, at a time when Elizabeth could do with a bit of positive reinforcement for her policy of advancing the Reformation rather than following Mary back to Rome. However, among the arguments for this particular proposition are these leading points. One, we've already dealt with, actually, that she laid fish and Tyndale's writings in front of the king. And then, good old Chapuis. What argument would be complete without Eustace Chapuis? He accused Anne and her family of all being Lutheran. Further, Anne is credited with a particularly strong personal piety, well beyond Henry's supposedly rather mechanical belief. There are various bits of evidence advanced to support this. She was an avid reader of the English language version of the Bible and supposedly defended those who printed and distributed them. On the same reading theme, six of the seven books that remain of her personal library are evangelical texts. And then there are reports of her exhortations to her court and her household to live godly lives. And in the same vein, there's a rather unsettling visit to the Sion Abbey, a notably devout religious house. The nuns refused at first to meet face-to-face with a layperson, and so Anne was reduced to rather patronisingly lecturing the backs of the nuns' heads. And then in addition, Anne is credited with many charitable works in support of the poor. Thirdly, it's pointed out that Anne advanced the promotion of four evangelical bishops. And not just that, she promoted evangelical chaplains to her own household. It's clear that Anne herself thought of these bishops as being specifically connected with her. In the Tower, she spoke of them as my bishops. So, before going through the counter-arguments to all of these, it's worth noting how important they are, in two ways. Firstly, for evaluating Anne's impact. If Anne advanced the cause of religious reform, then whether you think that's a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing, she's made an active difference to England's history. Secondly, her personal piety is important because without it, any impetus she might have given to the royal supremacy, for example, can be seen simply as self-serving. Let's consider the counter-arguments then to that impressive list of evidence that Anne was an evangelical reformer. First of all, Chapuis. Really, the guy is such a drama queen. Chapuis quite clearly saw any passion for reform and defiance of the Pope as Lutheranism. There is in fact no sign at all that Anne could be described as Lutheran. Her preparations for death, for example, are in all ways traditional. 
Shall I be in heaven, for I have done many good deeds in my day? She asked William Kingston. There's no sign there of the idea of justification by faith alone. The personal piety thing is very difficult, of course. Unlike Catherine Parr, Anne left no personal religious writings to guide us into her heart. An interest in the English language Bible was really not that exceptional at the time among the better educated. And the interest in the Bible, even Ives would agree, locates it in the territory of the Christian humanist rather than the evangelical, so territory where she'd reside side by side with Thomas More, for example. The six texts are similarly very much the product of Christian humanism, although there is some discussion of justification by faith alone. And there's no guarantee at all that Anne agreed with all of these texts, and it could be that simply she was an intelligent and well-read person with an inquiring mind, though it would have been more usual to have refused a dedication in a book the views of which she disagreed with. The charitable works thing is of course good news for those who want to think well of Anne, but it's hardly exceptional or evidence of evangelicalism. The more cynical might point out she was pretty unpopular with the great British public, and this was precisely the kind of activity designed to win her favour with them. There is also the odd occasion when you can question just how deep this personal piety was. One of the famous tussles with Wolsey was over the appointment of the Abbess of Wilton. It's the occasion where Wolsey rather bravely and foolishly goes ahead and appoints against the king's wishes. But before he does that, both Henry and Wolsey had decided definitively against Anne's choice for abbess, precisely because her candidate's poor personal reputation for wild parties and a bit of nookie made her rather unsuitable as an abbess. Anne's advocacy speaks of a rather higher priority for the secular and political attractions to patronage than it does for a passion for church reform. Of her bishops and chaplains, then, for me, the stronger of the two arguments is in the chaplains. OK, so she did indeed seem to have a special connection with the bishops, but there's no direct evidence she advanced their cause at the time. And if she did, it was again behind those closed doors. And it's just as possible that the reason lay in their support for royal supremacy. This is the 1530s, a critical time when Henry needed support to force through legislation against the dissent of Fisher and Convocation. Even with her chaplains, it's possible to challenge one of them, John Skip, her almoner is reputed to be a reformer, but throw your mind back to the sermon for which he got into trouble. A key part of that sermon was a rant against those who criticised the church. It's unthinkable he wouldn't have checked his text with Anne before he gave the sermon, or at least not if he wanted to keep his job, which he does, and indeed he visits Anne in the tower. So both he and Anne in that context look again less like radical reformers. Both appear to be hitting back at those criticising the church and demanding reform, in fact. Question four, then. Anne, the evangelical and religious reformer, once again, depends a lot on how you evaluate the evidence on which you prioritise. What seems undeniable is that Anne had an intelligent and inquiring interest in the theological issues of the day, that she at very least shared the conventional piety and commitment to good works demanded by her station, and was assiduous in their observance, and that she appointed some chaplains who demanded church reform. Beyond that, it's difficult to go with any great certainty. Which brings us kicking and screaming to the last of the questions, Anne's relationship with Catherine and Mary. If you're an Anne naysayer, you are tempted, I think, to rub your hands with glee at Anne's relationship with her adversaries. She is my death and I am hers, said Anne of Mary, reasonably adversarial, you might say. Anne's promise to poison Catherine while Henry was away if she was made regent, her loud declarations that she wished all Spaniards at the bottom of the sea, 
the celebrations of Catherine's death and the wearing of yellow, the reports that Anne constantly badgered Henry to carpet Mary and bring her into line and separate her from her mother, and the particularly nasty one, after Catherine's death, forcing Mary to become part of Elizabeth's household. That's exquisitely mean. Of course, there are then the two attempts at reconciliation that Anne made. Both of those can be explained away as purely tactical. To have Mary recognise Anne's queenship would have been a massive victory for Anne's legitimacy. All of this makes Anne look vindictive, mean, scheming. They feed into quotes like Alison Weir's an ambitious adventuress with a penchant for vengeance. I realise I have swapped around here, putting the negative case first. Sorry about that. Fan lovers, her behaviour is a little awkward, and a fair amount of time and effort is spent in explaining the enormous pressure that Anne was under, her lack of legitimacy, Catherine's popularity, the lack of a male heir, which is all absolutely fair, but hardly makes Anne a saint. The trouble is, the sheer quantity of stories that survive from Chapuis's pen and it leads to a no-smoke-without-fire argument. So it seems to me that the stronger argument is that a hostile witness like Chapuis is seriously to be challenged, to be discounted in many cases unless there is corroboration and treated as vastly exaggerated in others. Very rarely is there, in fact, corroboration. When you look at it, there's no evidence apart from Chapuis that it is Anne pushing Henry to take the actions that he does because it's Henry that demotes Catherine. It's Henry that puts Mary under such intolerable pressure, which continues after Anne's execution, just FYI. It's Henry that tells Mary she's going to be part of her replacement Elizabeth's household. We've only got Chapuis' view to tell us otherwise, and he's about as reliable as a chocolate teapot. A further argument in justifying the treatment of Catherine and Mary is that this is a matter of state. It's not a game. Catherine and Mary's defiance was a challenge to state policy. Now, you might think Henry's state policy sucks, but his state policy it was, and both he and Anne would have been feeble, wimpy loser butlerweeds if they didn't force those two to submit. Plus, as far as the treatment of Mary was concerned, this is simply good early modern parenting. Dad was at the head of the great chain of being. You were required to submit to his will. These are, ladies and gentlemen, happy days, where if other fathers would have been nodding approvingly at Henry the Dad, visited his fury on Mary's head, and I suspect many mothers would have been nodding to boot. Well, good golly, Miss Molly, I have reached the end, and I am again exhausted, not quite sure why. But there you have it, some of the pros and cons for the motion proposed, and the time has now come for you to make your decision. Let me repeat the motion so it leaves fresh in your mind. The History of England agrees with Eric Ives that Anne Boleyn was a maker of history and rejects Catherine of Aragon's insult that she was nothing more than the scandal of Christendom. For the moment, though, hi thee, lads and lasses, away to the Maypole, that is the historyofengland.co.uk, for further information about the question, voting, prizes, and then to the History of England Facebook page, the one with the heron, to place your vote and make your contribution to the debate. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. Good luck and happy voting. 